Support for this episode comes from Venture Noir. Venture Noir's mission is to unify family foundations, nonprofit organizations, and venture capital by creating a sustainable economic impact ecosystem. With programs like In the Black and Dare to Venture, they're working to reduce the wealth gap in the U.S. Learn more at VentureNoir.org. Support for this episode comes from High Ground Hair Space. High Ground Hair Space features a new approach to hair and human care that includes gender-free pricing and a focus on sustainability. Find them on Instagram at High Ground Hair Space to see their work. Book an appointment and learn more about their mission. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Emma Willis. Thank you all for joining me today on Raising a CEO. The podcast explores the idea that great leaders aren't born. Instead, they're grown. We're going to have some amazing folks dropping in to share their experiences so we can learn more about what it takes to successfully lead an organization. In this season, we start with the idea of the infancy stage of becoming a CEO. Guys, if you know me, you know I'm all about social impact. On today's episode of Raising a CEO, we interview Christopher Good, who's all about making sure his life lessons come directly back into his community. I'm super happy to have you on today on Raising a CEO. Thank you for having some time to chat with me today about this journey to Ruby Jean's Juicery. It's a pretty dynamic story. And if you guys know anything about me, you know, I enjoy social impact and anybody that's out there really doing the work. And Chris has put in the time to do the work. And I think the viewers or the listeners just need an opportunity to hear from you first, Chris, you know, who you are, what you're doing and how we got here. I had an opportunity a couple of weeks ago to visit Ruby Jean's Juicery on another trip. And I was taken completely aback by how beautiful it was. One, I mean, I don't know a single person that can use that much orange in a spot and have it go over as well. So kudos to you for that. In addition, your staff was lovely. The vibe was amazing. You just walk in and it's super energetic. And honestly, I wanted everything on the menu with the exception of anything with strawberries in it because I'm allergic. But other than that, tried the food, had the juice. You make something with uh, salmon and Brussels sprouts in it. It's like a salad. It's kind of warm. It's amazing. So for anybody that's in the Kansas City area and you are looking for a departure from your fast food or restaurant fare, something that can honestly fill you up and make you feel good afterwards and just keep wanting to move through the rest of the day is Ruby Jean's Juicery. And so, Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you. But I had to say that because I was completely impressed about juices on the way out of town. I am out, so you need to let me know when this um, at-home delivery service is coming up because I'm going bring, to bring back around to that at the end of the conversation because I, I absolutely want to know where this is headed. So without further ado, guys, I would love to introduce you to our guest today, Christopher Good of Ruby Jean's Juicery. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming by and supporting the business while you were here. Thank you for all the compliments about the businesses. You know, it's one thing that to have a business that was once a thought. And then even to this day, any anytime somebody comes in and they have something positive to say, it's always met with gratitude. So thank you. But my name is Chris Good and I am the owner and founder 
of Ruby Jeans Juicery here in Kansas City, Missouri. My story is a lot more about why we do what we do, but I'll first say what we do. We sell fresh juice that we make on the spot. We sell cold-pressed juices that we bottle in-house in small batches. We have a healthy food menu at that Truce location that you went to. So it's a full, fast, casual, healthy food menu. Everything from a vegan black eyed pea burger to Brussels sprout nachos and acai bowls. We also sell juice cleanses. So typically we sell more three-day cleanses than anything. We have named them resets because a cleanse is kind of, in my mind, it's not really a cleanse that you're doing. You're just resetting. So we call our hours resets. But that's what we do. And then why we do what we do is all stems from my late grandmother, um, who was Ruby Jean. My grandmother's from a small town in Oklahoma, Vianne, Oklahoma, then to Muskogee, Oklahoma, and Mm -hmm. then to Kansas City. But grew up poor, you know, living from a diet of soul food and whatever they had, they made the best of it. And she carried that up to Kansas City where she raised our family and taught us how to eat and, and cook and so on and so forth. And it was heavily steeped in soul food. Fast forward to... So you're talking about the... Um, we got uh, ham hocks in the greens. I'm thinking you got quite a bit of uh, bacon up in the saute of some uh, cream corn in a skillet. This all sounds familiar. And that was like the one thing about your story that really jumped out at me is, you know, being black, raised in the South, the food is a part of our story. And a lot of times we don't think about how it's impacting us, but you brought that out. And I believe I was watching... Were you receiving an award or you just got funding? But you told the story of your grandmother and I listened to it on my way from Kansas City back to Northwest Arkansas. And I was completely moved, a little teary eyed. But talk to us a little bit about that. And I think that's where you were going, uh, why you do this. But but talk to us about your grandmother and the lessons that you've learned and taken from that experience. Absolutely. So my grandmother was just she was the consummate grandmother. Like she if there there was a definition for grandma, her face should be right next to it. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, she kept our family together. I think the, the biggest thing about my grandmother that I would consider her superpower was that we were poor, but it, it never felt like it. Mm-hmm. And it was just an abundance of love and care and just joy that she was able to instill in us, even in the midst of, of strife. And so my grandma was really, really special in that way. She was a very shy woman, very, very, very meek. She's not going to be the person that's, you know, the big voice in the room. She's going to be the person. But but when she has something to say, I'm sure everybody stopped to listen. Right. It was one of those. Absolutely. So if if grandma is talking, everybody's like, what, (laughs) you know, is she talking to me? Um, She had these orange pillows in in the front of our little tiny, you know, house. And she'd be back in the back watching Will of Fortune. Me and my cousins or my siblings. <laughs> big orange decorative pillows. And she'd be in the back and she would say, I'm going to whoop them pillows. Man, <laughs> my pillows. <laughs> it's going to be some trouble. But nah, my grandma was sweet. But in 99, she ended up falling quickly ill, primarily from type 2 diabetes. Lived a very, very short life at 61 years old and mm. ended up passing away from type 2 diabetes. And it was something that, you know, when she when she passed as a 14 year old, it just it seemed like it made sense. Like she's she's older. 
Mm-hmm. It makes sense. I had never experienced death, but from those young eyes, it made sense. Now, as I got older, that's when I started to realize that uh, maybe 61 years old is not too not too old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what did that moment, I guess, or when, when that aha moment hit about your grandmother's life and the amount of time she spent here and how short it was, what did that engage in you or what type of fire was sparked at that point in time? In, in hindsight or at the moment? At the moment. At the moment, it was just sadness. The way it happened was was probably the that was really the the striking point. So when my grandmother fell ill, it was it was almost too late. Like she should have gotten mm-hmm. to the hospital and seen much sooner than she did. But coming from anywhere near the south and being black, typically there's a reluctance to go um, to the doctor. Yep, a hundred percent. And so she had that, unfortunately. And so once she got there, it was already too late. Uh, mm-hmm. So when we sent to for my great grandmother, who we called mom, to come up from Muskogee, Oklahoma, just to say her final goodbyes. So mom came up, and you know, so normally when we would see mom, we're traveling to Muskogee as a family. It's all joy, it's all laughter and fun. This time it was much different. So as soon as mom got to the hospital, you can just see how defeated she was because she mm-hmm. knew she had to go and say goodbye to her baby. So mom does that. She comes, she greets all of us, a bunch of hugs and tears. She goes into the hospital room. She spends about 45 minutes to an hour with my grandma and is our final moment with her daughter. She comes out after this because essentially after this, we're going to take her off life support. Mm-hmm. So mom comes out to the, to the waiting room with all of us. She kind of looks around at us, kind of takes this big gasp for air. She fixes mm-hmm. her shirt, sits down. And mom had a massive heart attack and died. That's my great grandmother. Yeah. And so that that's really what that's what kind of changed the moment is because my great grandmother, she was in her 80s, but in relatively good health, no pressing ailments. Mm-hmm. And we we consider that she died of a broken heart because she mm-hmm. wasn't really suffering from anything at that time. And then two yeah. days later, we took Ruby Jean off life support. And so for for me, I had never seen anybody die. Now I had seen it happen twice. And it was mm-hmm. two of the most important people in my life. Um, and then I had never seen grief up close like that to see my mother mourning the loss of her mother and grandmother. At it, the same time. Yeah. At the same time. It was it was a lot. And, it you know, it still makes me emotional to this day because it's it's my family. It's been over 20 years, but it doesn't it doesn't like and I tell the story a lot. So it doesn't like. Mm-hmm. go away it's just like man uh, well your story is a hundred percent i mean you the minute i heard you telling the story and again i was in the car from for about three hours on the way from kansas city back here to arkansas and as you were talking all these faces of my grandparents started popping up and i started thinking about the heart disease the type 2 diabetes and how just being a diabetic it impacts so much of your life and people don't give it as much emphasis as they probably should. But, you know, we still had the family dinners and we celebrated every holiday under the sun. And I'm pretty sure you did too. Easter came around for no apparent reason. Easter and Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving are all about on the same <laughs> page and the level of eating. And then not to mention you get warmer weather, we got family barbecues and like we never skimp on the desserts. We never skimp on you know, the ingredients, because the flavor and the love is always the biggest part of the African-American meal. And so 
I just I, I have to I this one was was a really a personal mission for me to talk to you because so much of your story aligns with, you know, us as black Americans and how we've lived our life and the things that we never took as being harm, eventually being harmful for us. And so I'm gonna let you finish telling the story and I got more questions, but I needed to make that connection because I was I was teary eyed in the car and your grandmother just hearing how you talked about her so lovingly and so endearingly made me think about my grandparents and the multiple trips to the hospitals and just what that journey was like as a young woman. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it it is an unfortunate reality that Ruby Jean is not a singular person. She was my mm-hmm. grandmother. But, you know, if you change her name, she is somebody else's grandma, somebody else's aunt, somebody else's. Mm-hmm. And it's this culture of of um, I think we, we've just become accustomed to just accepting that like soul food makes sense or that it's, yeah. you know, that it's it's a lifestyle. Soul food to me is a, it's a treat. It is. Yeah, it it should be. We should enjoy it, but we should enjoy it sparingly. It shouldn't be a lifestyle like even uh, every Sunday thing, even in our churches. Mm -hmm. When I was when I was coming up, we would have our regular service. He's referring to pastor appreciation Sunday (laughs) service. Evening service and in between those two, you're not going home. None. They feed you all day. Go downstairs. And when you get down there. What's down there? Yeah. You got fried chicken. You got sweet potato pie out of season. Yeah. Sweet potato <laughs> with all the stuff in it. A table full yeah. of desserts, pecan pie, pound cake, strawberry, lemon, whatever you want. And you yeah. can get as much as you want. And that's a that's a bad precedent to set, especially oh, yeah. I'm a man of faith from somewhere that we consider our, you know, holy ground and places that we we connect people with their faith. We shouldn't mm-hmm. encourage it. So it's just a it's a lifestyle for black people that I felt that my grandmother's reality could shed light on a lot of our reality. And you did. You absolutely did. I I think, um, and and this goes around to like the healthy choices for everyone. So your grandmother did something to spark a mission for you to actually bring health and healthy choices back into communities that you saw being marginalized or essentially they were food deserts, right? So a lot of places you exist right now are your footprint. Is particularly in places where people don't get to see that type of uh, food choice or option on a daily basis. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I got the opportunity to open a location on a street called Truce. Truce mm-hmm. is it's a mixed bag, right? So it's kind of all the same bag, but it's still mixed. It's the dividing line of Kansas City. So mm-hmm. back in the day, the racist powers that be said, okay, blacks and minorities, you stay east of truce, white and more affluent audiences, west of truce. And so where we exist on 30th and truce, we are the first ever 100% healthy business ever on the east side of Kansas City. And this the history of our city. And I'll take that like this, you know, like, oh, good job. I take it like, how in the world did that happen? Like how? <laughs> yeah. Like how did that happen? Have anything yeah. else? The entire side of the of the city, and it's in, this, in the area of the city where black people were relegated to. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's this mixed conversation that I'm proud to be a part of, but but not not in a way like oh look what Ruby Jeans did, but look what we need to be doing as as a as a community. 
Well, I think, too, I mean, you, you get to be a, this modern day pioneer, too. And it, it's not too hard to see a need to fill it. It's really about people's desire to really dig deep and want to support the communities around them. And I think that's what you made a decision there. It was a conscious decision to bring this to a community. One that I personally can see the changes that are happening in truth, because the way I came in, I went from, oh, this is this is a hood. Then we went over to these couple of blocks that were really cute. We trickled back into the hood and I hit this corner and I'm like, okay, none of this, all of this is being (laughs) gentrified right now. I'm not sure where I am because for me, you had never met me in person, but to meet me is to know that we can sit down and have a conversation. Like I'm about to ask you everything, what's happening down here? Why did they put this? Because the school district is across the street from you, right? What's the building, Catacorner? I think you have a... Directly cat corner, there's a this now it used to be the Wonder Bread Factory, whereas okay. where we are used to be the day old bakery where, you know, like the stuff is going back. But a little bit further down, the school board's offices. Okay. okay. I, I thought I passed that. I was like, I wonder if Chris is influencing at all the schools here and healthy choices. And I think you are, aren't you? That's a, a very interesting thing. So we haven't launched it yet, but I actually have a call at two o'clock today. But we, we've been working on this MOU with the school board and that MOU is to put this will be our pilot year. We're putting 10,000 bottles of cold pressed juice into the local school district. So that it's, is awesome. It's underneath the poverty level, getting a, a small eight ounce bottle of cold pressed juice free every Friday at a school district. Yay. So we'll do three schools this year. We'll ask the kids like, you know, what's your favorite? What's your least favorite? What is your favorite fruit? Stuff like that to try and inform how we scale it out further. Mm-hmm. That's super smart. I love how you keep bringing the community back into focus with every decision you make. Now, I want to go to the fact that you are a founder and president. And, you know, the title of my show is Raising a CEO. So I'm interested. Chris could have been anybody in his business structure. You have settled with founder and president. Talk to me, and I don't you may not even thought about this, but talk to me a little bit about the structure and your decision to go with the title president and founder versus CEO. I think founder is more intimate. I think it's more more grounded, more relatable. I think the title of CEO a lot of times is um from my vantage point, it's more self-serving. And that mm. that's just that's just my vantage point. I like founder, I like owner, operator, okay. things like that, because to me, it shows my my hands are, are still in it. And that, mm-hmm. even if we had a thousand stores, I would prefer that as opposed to being this, you know, like the CEO. And that's okay. not, that's not I'm here scary. for the humility and all of this. Nope, Other this CEO, is refreshing. <laughs> but this is just, that's just how I, that's how I perceive it. Yeah. Like this- even to be, to be, to be truthful with you, like if I didn't, if I didn't like have to carry a title, I I would my car could just say Chris Good. There you go. Know the man and know the works. No need to to throw a title in there. Uh, I got you. You you should see. You know you should see me by like what I'm actually doing by my actions, not mm-hmm. not you my title is. That's right. So talk to me a little bit more about Ruby Jean. Where you are taking this? who you see ideally impacting. And I know this isn't just about Kansas City. I mean, when I listened to the story the first time, I was like, okay, this guy is going to do big things. 
And I was like, I really just need to sit down and talk to Chris one day because I want to just spitball with you on what those things look like and how I can help. And this is where I get myself in trouble. But (laughs) it's a really it's good trouble. It's good trouble. But, you know, if anything, I'm always a friendly nudge to keep pushing people to see exactly what that potential is. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, Ruby Jean's journey. And honestly, I want to know the day one story. Like when you decided you're going to open up that first store, like were you like sick to your stomach, nervous? Were you worried about, you know, if things were going to break or what was going to happen? Because I can already tell that you kind of roll with the punches and you just keep pushing. But, you know, talk to me about the the story, how we got here. Sure. Um, so Ruby Jeans will actually celebrate six years in business on the 25th of this month. Oh, well, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Know it, it has been a uh, it's been a long six years. So pre establishing Ruby Jeans, it really started from a, a couple of buddies of mine that live in L.A. They introduced me to juice cleansing. And so when I get to L.A. on this particular trip, they're finishing up a seven day juice cleanse. And I had never heard of like, you know, I heard the word juice, but I never really had the reference for fresh juice or especially not juice cleansing. Mm-hmm. And so when they tell they tell me they're doing this cleanse and they got one more day and they're not going to eat instantly. I'm like, oh, y'all, y'all some different stuff because I'm completely foreign to it. And yeah. so they explained it to me and I already kind of had a feeling about L.A. where I'm like kind of weird out here. And so that, <laughs> that was my first inclination was to think that I lost my friends like, oh, L.A. took y'all. But then the <laughs> next day, the next day, they showed me this documentary and it's called Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I watch you've seen it. Yeah, so I, I watched Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. And it blew my mind because, it sh- you know, it showed this guy changing his life by drinking fresh juice over oh, yeah. 60 days. And while that's very aggressive and not many people can even do that, I still, by the end of it, you know, beginning of it, I'm texting like, man, let's go hiking or something. By the end of it, I was like, oh, my God, this dude changed his life in two months and my grandma couldn't figure it out in 60 years. And so I, it struck me and I was like, at the point for me, I was an ex-football player and I was in decent shape from working out, but I didn't really put any any focus or preface on what I ate. I just, mm-hmm. whatever I wanted, mm-hmm. just work out as much as I could. Mm-hmm. So then that changed for me kind of in that moment. I came home, I did a 10-day juice cleanse. It was horrible. First, <laughs> first four days. I probably, I was like, oh, no, nah, this ain't, this ain't. Bad at the world. It's like cheeseburger, media. You know, and my boys, they know I'm doing it. So they just finished the seven. I'm like, oh, man, if they can do it, like, I got to finish it. And so I They finished. had each other, though, Chris. Don't let them downplay it. They, they, <laughs> they started that as a pack. You just got yeah, the memo. <laughs> absolutely. So I'm trying to do this by myself in Kansas City. And it was terrible. And then by the end of it, it was amazing. I was like, oh, my God. I feel like I can still ball. And so I had my bounce. I had this energy about me and I kind of got hooked from that point on. So I was traveling for work as a catastrophe adjuster and I started going to juice bars across the country just as a consumer, but fell in love with the culture of it. But I can tell that the places I would go from coast to coast, they didn't really look at me as their consumer and they you can feel it. It was just like, oh, here you go in and out. But at, at one point, I ended up in Chicago, had been traveling a whole bunch. I was exhausted, woke up restless. And I started thinking like, all right, man, you can't do this forever. Like, what do you want to do? 
So my grandmother instantly came to mind of things that I was passionate about. All my tattoos are about my grandma at that point. And then I'm like, okay, well, what else? You know, you got a yeah. good job. You what you need? And I started thinking about, well, I like this health thing. I helped a couple of people lose weight. I like juice bars. Like, so I'm throwing back health, grandma, <laughs> grandma juice. What? <laughs> and it was like that. And I'm again, I'm a man of faith. So I felt like God was like, Chris, I, I am not going to write this down for you. Like I'm yeah. telling you what it is. And it was very, very clear to me. And so I kind of sprung up and I'm walking around, like pacing the room, like juice bar, grandma, I can do this. And the name didn't come to me right away, but the idea mm. did. And from there, I just kept noodling on it, noodling on it, building, quit my job way too fast. And then I went for it. I just, I did every, I put all my eggs in the basket and I went for it. I took out my 401k, I took credit cards. I took a small little loan. Every piece of money I could find, I put it into this, this thing. And at first I couldn't find a location, but once I found a location, I put all my cards on the table and went for it. Wow. I I have to commend you on being able to put all the eggs in one basket. I just had a conversation with a couple of female entrepreneurs maybe last week. And their thing was, how do you actually know when to jump when you are the sole you know, contributor in the house financially and you're a single parent? And I guess my question for you is, you know, where did that confidence or and in your case, I think it was faith stem from? to be able to take that leap and really just jump out there? Because, I mean, there had to be some trepidation, right? That's a that's a big decision to make. 401k, being liquidated, taking out loans, credit cards. These are all the opposite of what most Americans are trying to work towards. So talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming from the east side and saying, you know what, I got a job that's paying me over six figures. And just to even quit that job, you know, for I, I didn't feel as much hesitation, I think, Honestly, my father, he kind of missed the early portion, but when he he came into my life, he was an entrepreneur and still is. Mm -hmm. And so I got to see, I think the the thing I had working to my advantage is from an early lens, you know, 10, 11, 12, I got to see a black man as an entrepreneur. First hand, first hand experience, whereas that's not a a common optic for young black children. That was affirming in itself then. It it lets you know it can be done. Yeah, that's great. The irony in that is that he inspired, or I would say he was a big part of like not having his, not being as um, uh, afraid of taking a risk, mm-hmm. but he didn't believe that this was something that I should do. So, <laughs> so Oh, okay. Uh, Parents so, know best. Okay. So he's so, getting ready to give you the life lessons on what actually, okay. Because yeah. he had been through so many business endeavors, successful, failed, and he didn't feel like this one would do well. And so I kind of took that and was like, all right, well, you know, this is let, let me do it anyway. I, I'm the one that's going to have to figure it out, not you. So, yeah, there was a healthy amount of fear, but more excitement, anticipation. I'm a very passionate person. And as much as, you know, I liked having a, a great um, paying job and traveling the country, I knew that I had more to offer. And I just mm. for me, it was like, OK, once once I landed on what I felt like God said, this is your more to offer. And I did everything in my power to go offer it. Mm. Well, I have to say I, I needed to hear that one. I just came back from vacation and I decided today I want to stop adulting. So uh, <laughs> it lets me know that you can absolutely switch a direction. 
How old were you when you started this, if you don't mind me asking? So I'm 36. I'm about to be 37, 30. Okay. Yeah. So that that's a very young for most entrepreneurs when we see them be late in life. And you, okay, I got to ask about preparedness then. So at 30, you're about to take this step into entrepreneurship and you have some really great degrees. You know, we get to see the Harvard piece on there. Uh, you have your master's. So talk to me about preparedness. Do you um, feel like college no, <laughs> got no, you ready? <laughs> no. Heck no. So what I do in school are almost completely separate. Right now I'm in this Harvard program for public policy and leadership. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really baked and steeped into my impact in, on community. So mm-hmm. that, that aligns really well. But undergrad, grad work, running a business, at least my type of business, it's been more about just getting experience. What mm. like, learning? What experiences are you going through? I got a binder right here, and I'll be transparent. That's about this big, and it's a lawsuit. Oh, none of my classes did we ever go through the perils of a lawsuit on either side. Yeah, initiate or you're being sued. That could, that's very practical knowledge that I think could could be applied. None of my classes ever talked about business credit. None of them ever talked mm. about like. Uh, the highs and lows of a business and really being able to budget on a practical level. Mm. So while school was, was good to have some of those like foundational words in my, you know, in my brain when, you know, whether I'm navigating investment relationships or whatever it is, it's really been the experience of actually doing it. That's been the most important. Oh, and, wow. And, and my faith, I would say my faith is way more impactful than my education. I mean, it's carrying you far. And I think a lot of times we we don't bring up faith enough or, you know, a lot of our journeys being steeped in this religious or spiritual connection. But, you know, I want those people I wake up every day and I know exactly who got me here. It's like it's I have to acknowledge it because if you knew me again, you know, I fly by the seat of my pants. Nothing makes any rhyme or reason. But to this day, I don't have any regrets and it's nothing but success that's been able to follow me. So I'm super thankful. I always can appreciate somebody else that has this faith walk in the course of what they do. And it's it's present in what you do. It's present in your personality. It's present in the community and the people that sit in a restaurant. I mean, I think your team knew everybody that was in the restaurant. I thought that was <laughs> equally impressive. And real quick about, you know, teams. So talk to me about being a leader and somebody's boss for the first time. Like, how did that go? Like, I, you know, I really need to how know. Also, if Kyle, yeah, how is it going? <laughs> how is it going? You know what? And I wish people can see your face, too, because that was probably the best facial expression. <laughs> it's a trip. It is a trip. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a trip because how people see you and how you see yourself, they start to disconnect. Mm. Right. Like there's for me now. Some of my younger team, I can feel that they're intimidated by me. Mm. And I'm like, yo, I'm just Chris. I'm just Chris. What's up? Like, you good? And I, you know, I never, I'm not this iron fist, you know, this dictator. That's not my style. I'm super chill. I probably give too many chances and so on and so forth. So that's been the balance for me, finding how not to be, how not to have your kindness abused. Because there's a healthy level of boundaries that you have to have instilled inside of a, a team structure when you are at the, the top of that structure. And so that I think that's been my biggest journey is finding what those thresholds are to love people and meet people where they are, but also keep 
the focus of the business objectives, you know. So tell me how you think those two are going to come together, meeting people where they are and driving the focus of the company. A lot of turnover. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm being real, I mean, you know, I always rely on God to provide what we need provided. And so I never, even right now, such a labor shortage in this industry. I just trust God is going to make a way, you know, and that might sound crazy vague to some people. But at the end of the day, when you've been through so much and you've you've always overcome and always prevailed in some way, and it's not always been because of something you tangibly did. How could I not, you know, in this moment? So Mm -hmm. it turns into a lot of turnover because it's like lenient, lenient. Okay, now you tripping. Have a good day. (laughs) <laughs> the tripping part happens a lot yeah you I, know what I, I mean I, like okay you you going too far we ain't gonna do all of this yeah have a good day but i think at the core of it i'm gonna stay how i am because that energy and like the ability for my team and what i consider to be a small family to project that what i give to them outward to our mm-hmm. customers is most important to me even if we have to go through however many people to get there which can be very costly yeah. Um, you're training people and then retraining. Mm. You know, but I, I just think that in the long run, it's going to be important for me to stay exactly how I am. And now there's there's things that I will take as like my growth. OK, mm-hmm. having a better intake process for employees as a small company is sometimes hard because it's just like, you know, you and you that, <laughs> yeah. that squirrel ball, you in that kind of reactive, you know, phase as a, as a small company. And so I think one of the things that I've, I will honestly say is that my biggest opportunity for improvement as a leader is to set up better systems and processes and structure, even as we grow. Got it. All right. You ready for some fun questions? Because I got some for you. All right. So Chris is healthy, guys. I need to know what Chris had for breakfast. Chris, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? I had a egg white omelet with mushrooms, tomatoes, and onions. And a piece of toast. So we know Chris takes his time to prepare his breakfast because he diced up some mushrooms, onions, and tomatoes to put in that egg white omelet. Yeah. Not all the time. Well, okay then. Well then let's just get really honest. What is Chris eating a day? What is what is in a day? Yeah. What does this look like? For the man Uh who runs multiple, multiple juiceries, you do have a child, right? I do have a two year old. Two year old. Uh, okay, even better. The two-year-old is running stuff. We didn't even get to that part. <laughs> the two-year-old is literally the boss right now. I need to talk to the two-year-old. Yeah, he's running stuff. Oh, this face is the best one. <laughs> it's a smug, too. It's kind of like, what are you doing? Yeah. All right. So, okay, we'll we'll move past food and health because everything I think about you is fairly healthy. So, if you had to take over any company, what would it be? Mm. That's a good question. Dang, that's a good question. If I had to take over any company, what would it be? I think I would like to take over Bank of America. Ooh, we're going straight for who's lending the money. And I also think this may be steeped in a personal story. I'll find it out later (laughs) on the next episode. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think, you know. There's power in financing and being able to empower other people through financing. Absolutely. And to take mm-hmm. over one of the big well-known banks and do it from a like I bank with them. They don't uh, know. They don't know my story. Fair. They're, 
don't know anything about me. So I think if Bank of America turned into a company that was really the Bank of America, which reflects multiple races, multiple religions, and really embodied that, it could change the country. I think that's a good step. I, I didn't think about the financial institutes. I was going straight for a Bezos job or a Tesla. I, I really like to tinker and go ahead and go out of space and set some stuff up. Next question. All right. So the worst advice you've ever been given that was meant to be both structural <laughs> and supportive at the time. Don't open Ruby Jean's juicery. Ah, well, how's that going? I think it was terrible advice. I mean, yeah. I do not know where my life would be today if I had taken that advice. Wow. Yeah. And you, and I really wish this interview was longer because you have a part of your story where you share very publicly that you had a break in at the, the juicery and you ended up, I think you left money in the register, right? Yep. So one of the times we got robbed, we had money in the register and it was on me. So I was the one that was supposed to clear it that particular night and I just didn't for whatever reason. And it wasn't a ton of money, but it was just one of those like first just to get the call was like, ah, and then the thought, ah, you left money in the register, dude. You, ah, what are you thinking? Yeah. So lesson, yeah. lesson learned. But I think how does that make you better as a leader, though? Talk to me about what that experience did to change maybe some of the things that you do and and how you forgive mistakes that other people make. I think. I'm always looking to to be more heavily steeped in like personal accountability. So being at the at the top, if you will, and like not having to be really accountable to anybody where they're saying, Chris, did you do this or Chris, did you do that? Moments like that remind me that, you know, keep the focus on the mirror Mm -hmm. Um, because it's not always somebody on the team. It's most of the time it's, it's you. Wow. Wow. Those are powerful words. And this episode, that's going to be the quote for this episode. <laughs> that was great. I think it's always inspiring and encouraging when you find leaders who understand exactly what their position requires. And it's both keeper mission as well as that responsibility metric, being both responsible for your action as well as others. So I, I have to commend you on this one. That is that is some great points. Those are some really great quotes that you pulled out there. And I think they'll inspire people. Chris, I want to say thank you personally for giving me your time today to talk a little bit more about Ruby Jean's Juicery, the amazing story, your amazing grandmother, your love for your community and your family and how it's turned into this amazing business that has both inspired me because I just really wanted to know if there were franchise options available. And then two, (laughs) I just want to say, you got to come visit me in Northwest Arkansas. I I really want to extend that invitation. I'll be in the Kansas City area soon and would love to meet you in person. And with all of that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris, for both your time and energy and the transparency and what it actually means to be a leader, not a CEO, but a president and a founder of a company that he loves and a community that he loves too. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and that you can learn more about all of the work Chris is doing at rubyjeansjuicery.com. Find more episodes of Raising a CEO on all major podcasting platforms and follow us on LinkedIn at Raising a CEO. We again want to thank our sponsors, Vision Noir and High Ground Hairspace. Until next time, keep on growing.